0: Amen. I think if you had the names of the hymns in front of you as I do, you would see that they all revolve around service. Uh, And what I want to do tonight, God enabling, is to be an encouragement to those of you who have unsaved relatives for whom you're burdened and also to challenge you to realize that God has gifted every one of us to play our part in his providence. God has gifted every one of us to play our part in his providence. I'll mention this again uh, in the context of my message, but something that I often have told my students and continue to do uh, in the senior Bible class, you are now becoming who you will one day be. I'm 72, and I am now becoming who I will one day be. That never stops until the day the Lord calls us home. We are works in progress. And I hope tonight that uh, you'll be encouraged to look for ways that you can be used to the Lord to evangelize the lost and edify the saints. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Our text tonight is going to be Acts 9, but I, I want to give a little bit of background. Acts chapter 7. In his introduction to the book of Acts, Dr. John MacArthur states, as the first work of church history ever penned, Acts records the first three decades of the church's existence. One of the major individuals in the book is the Apostle Paul. And earlier in the service, I read from Galatians chapter 1, where Paul gives kind of an overview of his conversion. I want you to listen again as I read verses 11 through 16. Paul said, "But I make known to you brethren, that the gospel which was pre- preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the Church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism, beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my Father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. And then verses 22 through 24, he says, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea which are in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the truth. Which he tried once to destroy. And then he says, They glorified in me, uh, they glorified God in me. In this message that I share with you tonight, I want to be able to drive home the point that no matter how low a person gets, no matter how violent in the case of of Saul, uh, God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And as I mentioned, as the men were meeting tonight for prayer meeting, we honor God when we acknowledge that when we realize we are mouthpieces in the the hands of God, if I can put it that way. And this is a key thing that I want to stress tonight in this message. As church history continues to be made, God has an important part for each of his children to fulfill in his providence. And beloved, that's whether it might seem large or small in the eyes of men. Although Saul, later named Paul, will be the center of our attention. The principle of playing your part in the providence of God is going to be illustrated uh, by several people. Stephen, Peter, Ananias, Judas, obviously not Judas Iscariot, he's deceased, and lastly, Barnabas. Our text is going to be Acts chapter 9, and we'll be looking at other texts in the book of Acts, but Acts chapter 9. And I want to start out, though, just very, very briefly uh, in Acts 7, where we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus, the setting is the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. And we're going to look at, first of all, the persecution of believers by Saul led to the pro- proclamation of the gospel. Something that seemed so wrong and was wrong, God ended up using. The persecution of believers by Saul led to the proclamation of the gospel. Acts 7:58. if you look at that, it says... They cast him, Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We can continue over into chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Notice in verse 1, in the providence of God, persecution made many believers refugees on the front. While the apostles courageously remained behind in Jerusalem to care for those who stayed there. But think of that for a second. How terrifying that was to have people come into your home and drag off both men and women and causing others to be refugees on the run. Verse 2, unnamed devout men bury Stephen. And thereby doing that, they publicly identify themselves as believers. And verse 3, Saul made havoc of the church. The Greek word for havoc is strong, and it means ravaged, not just harassment, but an attempt to utterly destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging off men and women to prison. And I I can't help but think of the fact that in doing so, he made many children orphans. I think sometimes we have to stop and try to put ourselves into the context of what we're reading. Can you imagine what that would have been like for children? To have strangers come into the house, identify your parents as believers of Jesus Christ, and to drag them off to prison or worse. We jump several years past our text in chapter 9 to learn more about Saul, who would become known as Paul. And I want to paint a picture, if I could. Listen to these first two texts, if you would. First thing that we notice is this persecutor-in-chief thought he was doing God's work. I think that's important to repeat. This persecutor-in-chief thought he was doing God's work. Why do I call him that? Well, he was ambitious. Acts 22, 4, and 5, as he was defending himself before a mob, he said this about himself. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears witness with me, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. And, beloved, the point is this. He was ambitious, to be sure his ambition impressed the Jewish hierarchy. This is an up-and-coming young man who is zealous uh, for the faith, Not only was he ambitious, but he was an agent of destruction. An agent of destruction. Acts 26, 9-11, when he was giving his defense before King Agrippa, Paul said this. He said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Albert Barnes in his commentary says he sought to compel them to blaspheme the name of Jesus by denying that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, and by admitting that Jesus was an imposter. Paul was so indignant He laid aside all appearance of reason, and Barnes says with fury and violence of a maniac, he endeavored to exterminate the church from the earth. Frightening time in which to live. We don't know how easy we have it in America. The third thing I want us to consider, the preparation of Saul was in the long range plan of God. We've looked at first persecution of believers by Saul led to the proclamation of the gospel. Secondly, the persecutor-in-chief, this guy that was leading the charge, thought he was doing God's work. And now the preparation of Saul was in the long-range plan of God. And giving his testimony to a mob in Jerusalem that we read about back in Acts 22, Paul said this, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Why do I emphasize Gamaliel? I want you to turn back to Acts 5 because this, this uh, section is too long just for you to listen to. But I think it's critical. The preparation of Saul was in the long-range plan of God. And God used instruments of his choosing to prepare Saul. Acts chapter 5. The apostles were used of God to bring multitudes of men and women to Christ. And what they got for this, they were landed in prison. An angel from God freed them, and they immediately went to the temple to resume teaching the gospel. And because of that, subsequently, they were brought before the council. Now notice Acts 5.27. We read, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, notice, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this, man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God." And notice this, they agreed with him. A little farther up, they were furious and plotted to kill the apostles. And now they listened to Gamaliel, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house... They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Concerning Gamaliel, Dr. John MacArthur states the following, Like his grandfather, the prominent rabbi Hillel, Gamaliel, the most noted rabbi of his time, led the liberal faction of the Pharisees. This prominent Jewish rabbi was Saul's teacher. To be taught by him would be significant. It would be like attending an Ivy League school, if I can put it that way. God used this prominent Pharisee to spare the lives of the apostles in this occasion and to prepare Saul for an incredible future ministry to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, folks, based upon what we've reviewed thus far, young Saul, the zealous Christian killer, would be the least likely candidate to end up is the most prominent herald of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, when we look ahead at his ministry to the Gentiles and his contention with the Jewish establishment, he was being prepared all along for a unique, far-reaching ministry. And as I said earlier, like Paul, you are now becoming who you will one day be. Now, with this overview in mind, we want to go to our text in chapter 9 of Acts And the fourth thing that I want to share with you tonight is this. The predestination and conversion of Saul was in the providence of God. Acts 9, 1-4. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The point being, folks, Jesus spoke words only to Saul and not to those with him. And we'll point that out a little bit more in depth as we get into the message. But Jesus spoke words only to Saul and not to those with him. And then this question why are you persecuting me, shows us Jesus' intimate association with his own when they're suffering. He does care, and he's well aware when we suffer for him. Notice verse 5 through the first part of verse 6. And he said, who are you, Lord? Speaking of Saul, he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Verse 6a, so he... Trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The terrorizer is now terrified. The table is turned. Trembling, the word trembling means to dread or to be terrified. The word astonished means to stupefy with surprise or to astound and to amaze. Another way of putting it, beloved, is Saul realizes the enormity of what he felt he had to do for the cause of God. He realized the enormity of what he has done and the truth about who Jesus was. Now keep in mind, this, this was a, a guy like a hound on a trail seeking Christians, showing no mercy whatsoever. The second part of verse 6 and verse 7 again state that the Lord spoke words to Saul. Look at the last part of verse 6. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but saying no one. And let me insert here, the word voice can mean noise or sound. It does not have to mean a voice that you're hearing audible words, and that's important. This explains Paul's account in Acts 22:9. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Is that a contradiction? John MacArthur says, no, it is no contradiction, since Jesus spoke only to Saul. We find elsewhere in Acts 26, Paul says that that Christ spoke to him in the Hebrew language and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's no contradiction. And I think that's very critical. Jesus spoke only to Saul, and only he understood the Lord's words. MacArthur also states that Saul's companions saw the light, but only he saw the Lord Jesus. Only he was blinded by the light. And later in our text, this is going to be further confirmed. The Reformation Study Bible states Paul's companions can bear witness to objective, audible, visible phenomena. They heard a noise, and they saw the light. So his experience is not merely a matter of Saul's imagination. Yet the specific content of Christ's revelation is understood to Saul alone. To me, that screams of the sovereignty of God and salvation. The group heard a noise, saw the brilliant light, but Saul heard Hebrew words, Saul, saw, why are you persecuting me? And he saw a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you to keep your place in Acts Acts 9, and I want you to turn to Acts 28. And the point of turning there, folks, is just to underscore the fact that God must open the ears of people for them to understand the truth. The natural man understands not the things of God, neither can he, because they're spiritually discerned. God must open the ears of the unsaved for them to hear and understand. Let me give you background real quickly. We're going to read beginning in verse 23 of Acts 28, but listen if you would. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. The leaders of the Jews agreed to hear him. Now notice verse 23 and following. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, From morning till evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken. And some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. Verse 27. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Some heard and believed, while others heard and disbelieved. And as I said earlier, folks, God must do a work of grace for any natural man to hear the truth effectively embrace it, and embrace it savingly. And I would say this, it behooves us to be praying fervently that God will open the ears of the understanding of our unsaved relatives and, and friends and neighbors, that he will show them his truth and enable them to understand it. Out of a group of zealous Christian killers that were with Saul, Saul alone heard Christ's message. And notice how the apostles saw, uh, apostle Paul's preparation under Gamaliel enabled him to speak about Jesus and the law and the prophets from morning until evening. I marvel at that. You know, when you put the big picture together and and the puzzles of this together, how God over years and over time prepared this Christian killer to be a conduit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn back if you would now to our text in Acts 9 where we will see that the haughty Saul is humbled. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. By the grace of God, he who once described himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a Pharisee would one day refer to himself as the chief of sinners." God has done a work of grace in his life and and continues to as as this unfolds. Number five that we want to look at, we've considered persecution of believers by Saul led to the proclamation of the gospel in the providence of God. The persecutor-in-chief, this guy that was out front, thought he was doing God's work. The preparation of Saul was in the long-range plan of God. The predestination and conversion of Saul was in the providence of God. And now, the pieces of the puzzle in God's providence each played their role. Now I'm gonna mention some names, and this is what prompted me to uh, study this and do this message. There are people in the Bible that are mentioned one time. Number one, it's amazing they're mentioned, I have your name in the Bible, but they're mentioned one time. There are two in here that play somewhat of a minor role, one in particular, and I, it just made me realize Every one of us who are believers have been given a job to do, if I can put it that way, in the providence of God. It's our responsibility to trust and obey. The pieces of the puzzle in God's providence each played their role. Verses 10 through 16. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here... He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Commentators that I read all agree that we ought not think that the things that Saul suffered were punishment for what he did to believers earlier. They were in the providence of God for God's purposes. But look at two things. Judas provided the meeting place. That's all he did. Judas provided the meeting place. Now, if you're tempted to say big deal, then answer this question. Would you allow into your home someone with Paul's reputation as a heartless, zealous killer of Christians? Now, obviously, your answer is no. Your contributions in the plan of God may not seem important. Judas provided the house. They may not seem important, but in the big picture of things, in the providence of God, they're significant. The widow's mite, the cup of cold water. Uh, Don't think that the things that God has you do uh, don't mean something, because they do. Judas provided the meeting place, and Ananias provided the message. Acts 22.12, listen to this if you would. Ananias in that text is described as a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. The fact that Saul was praying and received a vision from God still left Ananias fearful, and yet he faithfully obeyed. It left him fearful, but he faithfully obeyed. Note verses 17 and 18. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. In Acts 22, Paul recounted that Ananias said, Brother Saul, receive your sight, and at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, referring to Jesus, and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord, the name of the one he tried to get Christians to blaspheme, the name of the one that he thought was just a dead leader of a cult he is going to call upon and then the words chosen you God has chosen you we read earlier that God separated him from his mother's womb but this word chosen literally means a vessel of election the English standard version and the new American standard state God has appointed you God has appointed you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. Saul was chosen by God at birth, and yet, beloved, later, he became a violent, destructive force against the church. I want you to think of Saul as I share the first verse of a poem of hope that I have shared in previous messages. I want you to think of Saul, because I think sometimes we can get the idea that how is God going to save that loved one? How on earth is he going to save that loved one? He is so against um, what I believe and what the Bible teaches. Well, listen to this, if you would. There is no fortress of the mind, no dungeon of the heart so black that light and life can be repelled. The call of truth there be brushed back. Nor is there rebel, rebel bulwark made where softened grace cannot invade. No heartland distant, cold and dark where love's sure word cannot persuade the arrogant or ignorant who will not or who cannot see their desperate need of saving grace that beckons them to bow the knee. Beloved, think of Saul and take heart over unsaved loved ones that you have. Salvation is of the Lord. I will not get into this, but i am just mention it generally, and I mention it to my Sunday school class because it's a marvel to me. I've mentioned it on more than one occasion of a particular relative of mine who uh, really had nothing to do with Christ. She had been educated in a religious school um, but really didn't want much to do with Christ. I had some interaction with her. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that God in his grace and mercy has not only saved her but has led her to really in her own way be an evangelist and she can reach relatives that we both love better than I can because of common backgrounds that they have so my point is this I said at the outset for those of you who are sitting here and you've got unsaved loved ones you've got unsaved uh, friends Pray to the God of grace that he will quicken them to life and grant them repentant repent faith. I have said this recently. I pray every night from Caleb right on down to the youngest, um, Sarah, that God and his grace will grow in the grace and knowledge all of our grandchildren who know Christ in a saving way, and he will quicken to life those who are not. And I believe by praying that, and yes, taking the occasion to be an example and a witness whenever the Lord opens the door, but praying that, I believe I honor God by acknowledging salvation is of Him. And He may not save them when I would like them saved, I would love them saved before He takes me home to glory. And this is kind of a parenthetical, somewhat funny, and then we'll go on. I can't resist. Um, When Micah and Maddie got married, I decided I was going to do a painting for each of our grandkids for their wedding present. And then it hit me. Sarah at the time was three. I won't even be around when she gets married, you know, unless something extraordinary happens. So I just ended up doing a painting for them all anyway. But the point being, getting back to this, I do pray daily, and I am... I'm sure that you do also, that God in his grace and mercy will grow those of our loved ones who are in Christ, that they wouldn't be stagnant, that they would realize you are now becoming who you will one day be, spiritually speaking as well, and that he would save those who are not yet in Christ. Then we find this sixth thing, and there are only seven, so not to worry about the time. The pro- prosecutor, the prosecutor, because he was judge, jury, and prosecutor. The prosecutor, Saul, becomes the protagonist, Paul, protagonist. Not all that fancy word, but putting in in layman's terms, a protagonist is a leader, a proponent, a supporter of a cause, a champion. And that would describe Paul. The prosecutor, Saul, becomes the protagonist, the champion, the leader, the proponent, the supporter of Christianity, Paul. Notice verses 19 through 22. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Notice 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who were heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those Who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Beloved, again, we know that his training under Gamaliel was instrumental in proclaiming Christ as the promised Messiah. What an irony! What an irony! A teacher of teachers was Paul's mentor and prepared Paul to be able to converse from morning till night in the law and the prophets that Jesus is the Messiah. That is the providence of God. And then we see, finally, the predator of Christians becomes the prey of those whom he had tried to impress. Can I say that again? The predator of Christians becomes the prey of of the very ones that he had tried to impress, the Jewish hierarchy. Verses 23 through the end of the chapter. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall on a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas... Took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit they were multiplied. Folks, just that sentence that all the churches had peace and were edified simply because Saul became Paul. Simply because the killer of Christians got converted. To me that shows how fervent he was and how zealous he was and and wiping out Christians. Un, like unwitting Gamaliel, like unwitting Gamaliel, he had no clue who he was teaching. Like obedient Ananias, who had the message, like hospitable Judas, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, played his part. I close with two texts that really get the big picture of Saul becoming Paul. Paul. Paul would later write in 2 Timothy 310 10-12, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Folks, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will... Suffer persecution. It's just a matter of time. All of those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And finally, in Second Timothy four, five through eight he wrote, But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm ready to already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I want to close with three applications. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that the Holy Spirit gifts individual believers as he chooses. The text also reminds us that each unique part of the body of Christ has an important function. No matter what Heart, you are, you have an important function. The providence of God, who is sovereign over all flesh, involves a myriad of people, both saved and unsaved alike. Um, Gamaliel in this particular message, Pharaoh in the Old Testament with Moses. But the providence of God, who is sovereign over all flesh, involves a myriad of people, both saved and unsaved alike. Saul, the zealous Christian killer. Gamaliel, the Pharisee who taught Saul, Ananias, the faithful mouthpiece of God, Judas, the provider of a meeting place, Barnabas, the mediator between Saul and the disciples, and finally Paul, the converted and commissioned instrument in the hand of God. Whether your role seems minor or major in the eyes of men, it's exactly as God would have it. Trust and faithfully obey. The second application. Although Saul's conversion was spectacular in many ways, in other ways it's no different than any other believer, all of whom are trophies of God's amazing grace. For us to say I'm not as bad as Saul shows an ignorance. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the last application, the last two verses of the poem that I read earlier, reveal a part that every one of us can play in the providence of God. A soldier of the hosts of light, mine is the herald's humble role. A herald proclaims news. Christ leads me to engage the hosts of darkness that enslave the soul. I must not fail to press the fight, full knowing it is God's to win, no matter that I doubt myself, to doubt my God is grievous sin. All souls are mine, Jehovah cries, and draws my focus to his power that reassures my fainting heart amidst darts. Doubts dark, oppressive hour. Though oft rebuffed, I persevere and bravely lift God's two-edged sword. Ne'er trusting in my own resolve, I gain new hope through Christ the Lord. God hears the often wordless prayers that from my burdened heart ascend, as love compels me to press on and plead for grace time and again. Strengthen my faith, Almighty God, as I recall that saving grace quicken my own dead heart to life and drew me to thy resting place. Beloved, I close with this. Use what you have, say what you should, do what you can for the kingdom. Use what you have, say what you should, do what you can for Christ's kingdom. Our sacrificial service to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to parallel the humility that we feel when we contemplate that God saved us in spite of ourselves.